Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 91. Star Trek, the motion picture. Welcome to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. And Ken, I wouldn't necessarily call this just another Mission Log. We're entering a new era today with our coverage of the original cast movies today, Star Trek The Motion Picture, which opened December 7th, 1979. Ah, yes, December 7th, a day which will live... In Star Trek history for being the time that they went to the movies. <laughs> it's a new phase, pun intended, for Mission Log. So uh, we got some new formatting for this show. Movies are long. Um, your podcast, yeah, well, we shouldn't make it short just because we always make it short, but I, I don't think it would be fair to say, well, the movie's long, so the podcast is going to be too. It's, it's, uh, the show's going to be about as long as it needs to be, would be my thinking. What about you, John? I, I thought about actually doing uh, just a 20-minute walk around my computer <laughs> in order to lead into today's show. I Wait a minute. Would, Wait a minute. Know, Only thought about it? <laughs> well, you did Dude, it, actually. You yeah. called me. Uh, <laughs> I will say, though, the underside of my Mac looks amazing. You know, even that, even that <laughs> right. third time that you go right. by it. Wow, it's just magnificent. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, it, what that means is that, you know, we're, we're going to change the format a little bit here. Rather than our usual very pithy act-by-act uh, act recaps, uh, we decided for the movies we would actually really scale it down. Because what I want you to do is go watch the movies. They're good. You know, at least if they're not good, they're Star Trek. Um, so we're just going to give you the essential elements to get everybody on the same page. And then we'll go into our discussion from there. We even decided we're going to blow out trivia. Oh, man. Wait. No. <laughs> we're not? I got, I got loads of trivia, Ken. Uh, I, loads of trivia. I am so confused about what I'm supposed to be confused by. I, I tell you what. You do that. I'm going to keep walking around my Mac and make sure that I saw it repeatedly. <laughs> okay. All right, Ken. Well, trivia for Star Trek the Motion Picture, the, the big question is where do we even start? The, this is huge. Um there is so much trivia because there was so much that led up to this movie. I mean, we hit phase two in our last episode, and by the time we get to the motion picture, we now have Robert Wise on board. We had the ballooning budget from all of the aborted projects that preceded it, and we had that looming release date, December 7th, 1979. It was to be the movie's premiere before even one frame of film had been shot. This was a done deal. Is it um, not crazy when they do that? We, it is we completely knew, insane, yeah. We knew when the next Star Wars movie was going to be released. And as you and I record this, it has not been yet, as people listen years mm -hmm. from now, maybe. But I think J.J. Abrams had, had been named as director. They hadn't even talked about a cast, but we knew when it was going to come out. Right. That's right. Kind of, yeah, that, it's nuts. insane. And the, even with Star Trek 2009, it was originally slated to be Star Trek 2008. Um, but that got pushed back for a number of reasons. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's crazy when you just have a release date 
at least something that is more specific than just summer <laughs> or right. 2016. Yeah. So when faced with this looming trivia, and I think there are a lot of things that contribute to this, Ken. I mean, Star Trek by 1979 was already part of the pop culture. So you had a lot of attention on this project, which means you have a lot of people recording what is going on, a lot of eyes on it. So there's just more information and you're dealing with the bigger scale of a movie. So there's just more stuff. And honestly, you could corner me at uh, in Vegas or where, whatever Star Trek convention you may find me in, and we could talk for another hour on trivia. And I just had this sort of hit list here. Should we talk about how James Doohan created the Klingon and Vulcan languages in the films? Uh, should we talk about Mark Leonard playing the Klingon commander of the Amar? Uh, how about uh, David Gautreau being hired to play the Vulcan Zahn? for phase two, but then getting the role on uh, Epsilon 9 because Nimoy came back. Um, how about all those familiar faces in the recreation deck scene? You've got David Gerald, uh, B. Joe and John Trimble, Richard Arnold, and everybody, kind of the big thank you to the fan scene. Um, how about uh, DeFalco uh, sitting down at the navigation console? That was Shatner's wife at the time, Marcy Lafferty. Um, how about the speculation that V'ger came from the Borg planet? Uh, no, we're not going to talk about that <laughs> because that's all very interesting. And you can find out all of that and more on the Blu-ray and DVD sets and on the Internet. Um, but I just want to hit on a, a couple of points before we get into it. Um, let's talk about box office a little bit. The film cost, by estimation, $35 million, although they said it was about $46 million by the time you plug in uh, the, the scripting and set building and production development for Phase 2. And the movie's made about $82 million. And if you adjust that for inflation, that's still a lot of money. Um, for today's show, I'm watching the director's cut, and we want to mention that just because the director's cut exists only in standard definition, only on DVD. Um, it was overseen by Robert Wise and approved by him. And it tries to fix some of the unfinished business of the theatrical release. Um, there are great resources on the Internet doing a scene-by-scene -scene and shot-by-shot -shot breakdown. I will say this, Ken, though. The picture quality is much, much better if you're watching an HD stream or Blu-ray. Um, and for your and my purposes, it kind of doesn't matter because our show is not about that. Our show is not about the shot by shot differences. Our show is about the themes, morals, meanings, and messages. It's, it's uh, good that you say that because I watched the theatrical release. Oh, very good. And you probably saw it in HD and you probably saw it with a, a better picture quality. Um, compared to the director's cut. I, I just find that the, the colors, the clarity is, is so much better on that Blu-ray or in that HD stream. So, would would um, it be wrong to say that I think I could tell where Shatner's real hair ends? Oh, hey. I, I'm, I'm yeah, saying it was no. a clear picture is all I'm saying. Right, it was very, very clear. I'm, yes. I'm not 100% certain that that was a, uh, a piece, as they say. Right. Um, it, it was a clear picture, I'll, I'll say that. Well, the, all of this is to say that the motion picture was always kind of unfinished until we got to that uh, director's cut. And, and even now, you know, there's sort of uh, a desire for an HD version of that 
unfinished director's cut. Why was it unfinished? Rewrites were happening all the time on set. Um, there, there were script notes where words or phrases were dropped for efficiency, again, covered very well in the Blu-ray and DVD releases. I, I personally prefer that. I, I'd rather see an actor act than to hear them explain, and that's kind of what got cut out of the script. Um, the end sequence was worked out on set with Nimoy contributing many of his lines when they're at V'ger. Um There was even one proposed moment uh, that Chekhov would be killed but instead he got burned, um, which we see in the movie. Um, Alan Dean Foster gets the story credit. Gene had clearly toyed with the script idea before. We talked about that in uh, our talk with Judy and Gar. Um, and Robot's Return was that drafted script for the unproduced Roddenberry series Genesis 2. Now, um, In Thy Image would have been the TV version of the motion picture had Paramount uh, Network actually occurred, had that actually taken off and phase two had gone into production. Um, Again, the main thing here is discovered documents. I've got two sets of discovered documents that I really, people, if you have not gone to missionlogpodcast.com and checked out discovered documents before now, please do it for this because these are really, really cool. We have a memo written by Leonard Nimoy that tries to address that missing time between the end of the original series and the beginning of the motion picture. It is a brutal Vulcan ritual designed to focus the mind and drive out any remaining emotion. Now, Nimoy wrote about it in his autobiography, I Am Spock, but until now, the full memo has never been seen. The ritual he envisioned is pretty hardcore, Um, definitely not what we saw in the movie, but I think it's very helpful to kind of explain or at least put a little background to what was going on in that Kolinar segment. But here's the other really cool discovered document. Uh, We have a set of never-before-publicly-released photos from one of the production designers of the motion picture. So a big, big thanks to friend of the show, Mia Rosella, for sharing pictures uh, with us of her grandfather, Benjamin Rosella. These are behind-the-scenes shots of him on the set, meeting the stars of the film. These pictures, like I said, have never been public uh, until now. You get a great shot of uh, the construction of the set, him hanging out, uh, working there on you know the corridors and engineering. And we are so grateful to the Rosella family for sharing them with us and with all of you. You know, I know, John, that you are just dying to get our heads into a world-wrecking cloud of knowledge. But uh, yeah. before we do that, uh, words today from our friends Connected Data, makers of the transporter and sponsors of this week's Mission Log. Uh, John, do me a favor, remind me, please, or remind everyone listening, please, uh, what the transporter is. Well, Ken, it's kind of like having your own private cloud. And when I say that, I don't mean a planet-eating, civilization-destroying cloud. I mean the good kind of cloud. I'm talking about cloud computing that allows you to securely sync and share files. And it's your own private way of doing that. I love the idea that I can upload information if I'm sharing it with you or sharing it with listeners and then give them a location to go pick up that data. All the photos that I take from my iPhone, all the photos that I accumulate on my computer, they can sit securely in the transporter and that I can get those out to other people. And better yet, they can send me files securely and privately on the transporter as well. 
Yeah. Yeah, we actually talked about that last week, uh, some of the ways that you use the transporter, like sharing big files and you know small files with mission log listeners. They don't have to have a transporter for that. I mean, that's kind of cool. They're they're sort of working off of your transporter. Of course, if they did right. have one, that you know, that'd be gravy. Um, one of my favorite things about the transporter, actually, they are never done doing what they do. Um, it's weird. Uh, the transporters that you and I have now are actually better than the transporters that we got originally, uh, even though they are the same physical machines. Um, uh, software updates have actually made them a lot faster than they were initially. They've gone back in and they've made the desktop interface a bit more friendly. Um, they have apps now for iPhones, iPads, and iPod Touches that they did not have when we got them. So we can access all those files. You know, you want to, I don't know, you're at Starbucks and you bump into a friend. You want to show them something you did that you've got stored on your transporter. You're not eating up a lot of like storage on your iPad to be able to do that. So that's kind of a cool thing. Um, and then they get new features from time to time. Like, like I've actually, they've got this new feature set up for the iOS apps where it'll automatically back up the photos that you've got to your transporter when you get home or when you get near the transporter again. Or maybe it's just when you get, I think it's when you actually get back on your network where the transporter is. So every time I'm out walking my dog and I take some pictures or something like that, I come back home and I look down at my phone and it says, hey, transporter is copying 26 pictures because I take lots of pictures of my dog when I'm walking him. Okay, back off. <laughs> but I mean, it's actually, I mean, it's acting as, as, as a backup, which I'm, I'm still syncing my phone, you know, someplace else. And because I have an iPhone, I've still got, you know, a photo stream. I mean, my photos are well backed up. Mm-hmm. I love the fact, though, that that it, that was not what I bought this for. That was not even something that was on the horizon when we got our transporters. And yet, uh, you know, they're going back in every now and then and making it just making it just yeah, just a little bit better, making it making it you know a bit more friendly, a bit more user friendly, uh, making it a more full powered device. Yeah, very true. I mean, it kind of is like a, a Swiss Army knife for your online computing and sharing and file storage. I really love that about it. And it is incredibly convenient. And the best part is that Transporter by Connected Data is making it easy for our listeners to get one and to try one out. Um, all of our Mission Log listeners can save 10% off their purchase. So that means up to $35 on any transporter model by using the code MLOG. That's M-L-O-G when you buy at filetransporterstore.com. Transporters come in 500 gigabyte, one terabyte, and two terabyte capacities. And let's say that you already have your own USB drive, so you don't need that extra capacity. You can buy the transporter sync. So it's a, a smaller model that lets you do everything else, but you get to add your own storage. You can save 20 bucks off of that at filetransporterstore.com, different code MLOG20. So when you go to filetransporterstore.com, you're using either MLOG, M-L-O-G, or MLOG20 for the transporter sync. And remember, you get free shipping on all of those, and you have a 30-day risk-free satisfaction guarantee. Try it out if you're not thrilled. Send it back, and you get your money back. The URL again, filetransporterstore.com. And a big thanks to them for sponsoring this week's show. The floors are sticky, the room is huge, and smells like other people. Star Trek must finally be at the movies. Background. The five-year mission is over by a couple of years, and the Enterprise is being overhauled. 
Kirk, now an admiral, has a desk job. Spock is back on Vulcan trying to eliminate the last bits of him that are human. There are a few stragglers on board during all the construction, including Will Decker. Now, where have we heard that name before? That new guy is the new captain. For now. We meet another new character on board, Ilea. She's Delton. And just about everybody on board can see that she's A, beautiful, and B, had a thing with Decker a while ago. It's all good, though. She's taken a vow of celibacy. She's just there to do her job. There's also a gigantic cloud approaching Earth, and it seems to be destroying everything in its path. Klingon ships, Epsilon 9 space station, you name it. The Enterprise, in its unfinished state, is the only ship near enough and ready enough to investigate. And Kirk will have to take over. This will not sit well with Captain New Guy. What happens? On the way to encounter the cloud, Will Decker, formerly Captain New Guy, is now the new science officer. He doesn't take well to any of Kirk's orders, but then he knows more about the new Enterprise than Kirk does. Oh, uh, wait, Will, your time as science officer will actually have to be cut short, too, because who should appear but Mr. Spock? The whole psychological test on Vulcan did not play out very well for him, and even though he's trying very hard to be purely logical, he feels as if he was called back to space by a consciousness. Is it the cloud, or is it just that voice in his head telling him he'll never reconcile his human and Vulcan sides? Once the Enterprise does encounter the cloud-slash-alien-slash-machine, it probes them and steals Ilea. Too bad, Decker. Well, it's not all bad. She does come back, only this time she is a mechanical unit created by the alien entity, V'ger, designed to investigate the Enterprise and all the carbon units, humans, infesting it. Once that job is done, it will just record all of their data patterns, killing them. Spock acts on his own to mind-meld with the unknown entity. He steals a spacesuit, pushes onward into V'ger's immensity. When he comes back, wow, he is changed. Spock sees that V'ger's pure logic is both sad and hopeless. V'ger is a living, thinking machine in search of its creator, just as Spock is trying to figure out who he is. Ultimately, the robot Ilea leads our crew to meet V'ger itself, what do you know, V'ger is actually Voyager 6, one of Earth's old space probes. It was found and reconditioned by alien machines and returned to Earth to complete its mission, to share its knowledge with the creator, its god. That's not going to happen, though, and V'ger, in its logical, mechanical way, gets frustrated and confused. It wants to complete its mission, but these humans, these carbon units, are inferior. It even short-circuits itself when Kirk has the Enterprise transmit an unlock code to have Voyager transmit its data back to Earth. Not good enough. V'ger wants to merge with its creator. Seems like a promotion to Decker, so he steps up and is absorbed in a blaze of light by the machine. Ilea, well, what is now Ilea, is there too. The Enterprise crew has just seen the birth of something new, a machine entity that now has the compassion, imagination, and wisdom of a human mind. The end. John Unit, you did an excellent job with the recap. <laughs> Thank you, Ken Unit. Yeah, That's all the I unit do. jokes. We just get the unit <laughs> jokes out of the way. <laughs> you want to? Okay, yeah. uh, Ilea had a thing with Will Unit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know yeah. she did. 
The Decker unit. Yeah. The Decker unit. Yes. <laughs> which is also which is also a great band name. Yeah, the Decker unit. That was my Devo cover band. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <clears throat> nice. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, this was cool. Depending on which version you watch, you open with an overture. Yeah. It just just black screen and the beautiful Ilea's theme from the movie. Very retro. But then again, yeah. Robert Wise, he's a director who did some of Hollywood's biggest musicals, West Side Story, Sound of Music. Okay. And yeah. Get okay. It? See, I, I did not know. I was actually going over it in my head. I, we were arguing, my wife and I, actually, as we yeah. were watching this. She said, usually it says overture on the screen. And I thought, no, I think it does that now because people think it's broken. <laughs> right, right. I don't think he went yeah, to the yeah, theater yeah. and it was flashing overture on the screen for however long the overture was. I couldn't remember. But what right. I did immediately think of was West Side Story because I remember the overture of that mm-hmm. is, a, is a line drawing sort of of the West Side yeah. as the overture plays. Um, it really was neat. It really was old school. And I will say I could have used them saying overture. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. I honestly thought at first that there was something wrong with my copy. Yeah, my copy yeah. being a streaming version, but I thought at first there was something wrong with my copy, and then about thirty seconds in, I thought, "Hey, you know what this is? This is this is this is kicking it old school, right?" Yeah. Right. Well, that that soundtrack is by Jerry Goldsmith, and I, I'll just get this spoiler out of the way about my opinion. I, I think the music is phenomenal, and I love that we get to sit back and just absorb that piece of music. It's about a three-minute chunk at the beginning. I don't uh, think it's even that long, honestly. Yeah, maybe it's a little bit shorter. But yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, but Robert Wise, okay, he got a start as an editor. And uh, among his editing gigs, a little movie called Citizen Kane. Get <laughs> um, out. For real. Wow. Yeah. All right. Um, and then he directed uh, The Magnificent Ambersons. So okay. a nice little – well, at least he directed sequences of The Magnificent. I was going to say, because yeah, that, yeah. that was a Wells movie as well, I it, it was, yeah. yeah. He, he had a good working relationship with Wells at that time. Um, and then it is just on from there, the day the earth stood still. Um, like I mentioned, the, uh, uh, the musicals that he did, Run Silent, Run Deep which, of course, should not be unfamiliar <laughs> to people who know Star Trek. Not, not, so, not a musical, though. No, not a musical. Okay. No, no, no. Uh, but, yeah, uh, so a really interesting choice to have an old-school, big Hollywood director do this kind of movie. You see, I was going to say there's uh, – but it takes a lot of um, – I mean, to say all that makes it sound like we're going to be watching a black-and-white movie, and you're not. I mean, the Overture thing <laughs> right, is kind of right. neat because it sort of sinks you into it, right? But mm-hmm. I would say either he or the or the, um, or the the screenwriter uh, absolutely love 2001 A Space Odyssey. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were like nuts for it down to, hey, we're going to have some of the same effects, not the exact same effects, but let's, you know, send them into space, you know, flying through things that look like the old ABC movie of the week credits, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that don't actually mean anything, but sort of blow your mind or at least, you know, cross your fingers that they will again. Yeah. Um, there was also a dash of an electrical orchestra video. In, in this. <laughs> right. <laughs> and some close encounters of the third kind, too. I mean, it had a very... It had a very sort of late 70s future um, uh, aesthetic to it. Well, it's funny that you should mention that because there are two ways to look at this. I mean, first of all, visual effects. You had Douglas Trumbull, who did effects for 2001, doing effects on Close Encounters and Star Trek motion picture. Okay. So there's a bit of that sort of DNA that that runs through that. but then I think the other thing is if you put this in the context of the time that it came out, 1979, okay, it's only 10 years, a 10-year period that you had 
2001 come out. 11. Well, 11. Okay, yeah. And then only a couple of years before, Star Wars. And, of course, Star Wars it kind of kicked off this arms race of science fiction, big-budget blockbuster movies. So I think you have a little bit of a reaction to Star Wars saying, hey, Star Trek is going to be different, but it also has to be on a grand scale. But then you go back and you look at, oh, wait, well, the effects in 2001 were so real, so tangible, Mm -hmm. that that's kind of the look that we'll go for with Star Trek. Well, and I, I really, I think if you leave uh, Close Encounters out of that list, then you're then you're giving Close Encounters a bit of short shrift as well. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah There's, yeah, a, there's yeah. a vibrancy to the color, right? Um, right. And and what's weird is I, I joked about ELO, but there's almost, I mean, there's almost a cartoonishness to some of it as well, and that's not mm-hmm. making fun of it. It's mm-hmm. it was a particular style. Yeah. Um, it reminded me somewhat of Xanadu as well, but of course ELO was you know part of that, so maybe right. that's why I'm getting that whole thing. Right, right. And it's crazy to think that you're going to be talking about something that's so 70s when you're talking about Star Trek. But then again, we could also talk about, you know, Dr. Bones McCoy being outfitted by Laser Shoot Larry. <laughs> uh, laser right. Suit Larry, excuse me. As okay. He, yeah, <laughs> you know, after he loses the Grizzly Adams. I mean, yeah, yeah, once he's yeah. done with that. Well, okay. I mean, for all the things you can say about this movie, yeah, mm-hmm. the, the costumes suck. I, I get it. And I get their reasoning for it uh, because Robert Wise always said, well, when you're on a small screen in color and you were trying to force the color into the living rooms of people watching the show in 1966, that was great. But this is a big screen where we have a big scope of everything. I want the actors to stand out, not their costumes to stand out. Yeah. But it was 1979. And it kind of looks like 1979. Although Shatner's admiral uniform is awesome. And his short sleeve, like casual duty uniform, is rad. That is so cool. <laughs> I think you're wrong about that. His admiral uh, uniform is his admiral uniform is fantastic. Yeah. His his uh, his casual. I mean, seriously, looks like he just came off the tennis court to tell them to you know fly straight into an alien intelligence. Maybe he did. Maybe that's, <laughs> that's a scene we didn't see. That's true. Yeah. You know, what's yeah. interesting is we actually so for the rec room mm-hmm. we go back from the holodeck idea that was introduced in the animated series to eh, you know like the like the uh, what's that what's the what's the really mod hotel at disneyland or disney world oh oh right like uh, the contemporary yeah yeah, yeah we yeah, go yeah, back yeah. to a very much a a disney world contemporary resort uh, right. idea of what we're going to do in the future to to, to relax oh idea right. like this game what is it well you put your hand on it and it makes color <laughs> right. Oh, like right. Simon? No, no, Simon's a little fast-paced. Yeah, <laughs> it is not even that good. Not even <laughs> well, that it's good. not that active. Who knows? Yeah. And again, yeah. she was Delton. Right. Well, which, hey. which apparently means, you know, it, well, yeah. Well, it's a good point about that because <laughs> Gene Roddenberry kind of indicated that it, it, here we're going to create this new race, the, the, this new group of people from a, the planet Delta Four, that one of their dominant traits would be their sexuality. And that's interesting because you think if we're going to do a TV series and you've got 13, 26, hopefully more episodes to explore that, then you can start to explore sexuality in the way that Star Trek, the original series, is pitting the logic versus emotion thing of Vulcans versus humans. So it's another avenue for them to do some character exploration. But we only get a hint of that here. Yeah, I couldn't honestly tell. <laughs> I'm sorry. She comes on and he's like, uh, you know, Kirk's like, hey. 
<laughs> and she says, my oath of celibacy is on record. And yeah. I honestly, I didn't even know until I went and did some reading that it's because they were such sexual beings. I thought, okay, either she's trying to tell Kirk, look, I'm, I'm cool working with Decker, even though I have had a thing with Decker unit. Right. Or if she was just saying, yeah, I've heard about you, dude. Listen. Yeah. Back off. Yeah. Love him and leave him Kirk. Okay. Right. Because I right. have signed a piece of paper that says you're hot. I'm sorry that, that I'm not <laughs> right. going to do anything. Right. You, wow, really? You're going to wear the casual outfit? Uh, <sighs> yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. It, it, <laughs> it, it wasn't. It wasn't explained enough. I didn't think. Yeah. Hey, can yeah. I can I touch on one thing really quickly? Yeah, of course. And it's not a Decker unit joke. Oh, hey. Um, you didn't do this in trivia, and I'm trying to remember if I remember this correctly. Was Star Trek the motion picture not the first tie-in for the Happy Meal? It was. I'm so glad that you did bring that up. Yeah. Right. Uh, the very first McDonald's Happy Meal was tied into Star Trek motion picture. And, and I remember sitting in a theater in 1979 wearing the little uh, sort of translucent blue plastic watch that was one of the toys that came yeah. with that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So cool. That's the so one cool. I had. I never, never knew what it was or what it was supposed to be. Kind of like their wrist communicators that, yeah. that were introduced in this movie, but yeah. um, which, by the way, just a piece of plastic is yeah. another example of Star uh, Trek being so forward thinking. Right mm-hmm. now, as you and I record this, and who knows, there are analysts or analytics firms or whatever that say two years after you and I record this, people are going to look at wearables the same way we look at um, you know with those bicycles with the big wheel in the front and the little wheel in the back. <laughs> right. But right now, the world is just, oh, ed up with the idea of edibles, uh, not edibles, I'm or, sorry. Or edible. Uh, yeah. Wearables and smartwatches. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and there they're all, all in Star Trek just walking around with it. They also solved the problem that we had in Miri of finally making the communicator wearable. Right. Now we're going to get rid of that for Star Trek 2 <laughs> right. for some reason. But for, for one bright, shining moment, they were like, no, seriously, nobody will be able to take these unless they uh-huh. cut off your hand. <laughs> oh, well, maybe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Have to, but then, you know, 80 years from now, they'll just cut off your clothes to get your communicator. How does that sit with you, Captain Kirk? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, we got some great notes that I want to hit upon here from uh, from a listener, John Kerkorian. So thank you for uh, letting me share your notes here, which I'm going to summarize. But um, I love that he says that this is the first time that the Enterprise has been something hard to control. It is difficult to work on the ship. Things go wrong. Things blow up. You know, it takes this crew to actually do their jobs. To make this thing work. And, and I thought about it, you know, you think about an ocean liner with a thousand people on the crew. They all have to be there and they all have to be doing their jobs well or else the whole operation fails. And we have technology that doesn't work, kind of justifies McCoy's fear of the transporter. We have an engine room that isn't ready. We also get some other interesting things here. We we get the structure of Starfleet. I like that we have a moment on Earth where we get to at least a little bit see the politics and the fact that people might get shafted on the way up because of ego. Uh, we get lives outside of the enterprise. I think all of that stuff is handled very well. And I will say, speaking about um, people getting shafted on the way up, Will Decker, who of course would have been the the son of Matt Decker mm-hmm. uh, from the original series. Um, I love Kirk's introduction into this movie. I love when the shuttlecraft pulls into Starfleet and he's 
he, he just he looks cool and he looks tough and he looks heroic. But then they play this sort of fish out of water element where he's a guy who's a little detached from what's going on and he's fighting for his command. And it just sort of seems like an ego trip. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think they play a lot of levels there that are well, well done. Hmm. Do, you, do you agree or disagree with me? I disagree. I mean, I think, and, they, I think they played the fish out of water thing very well. You're right. Mm-hmm. But I think I think Kirk is just uh, I think Kirk is a jerk. I think I think the, the the Enterprise should have made him another one of those jackets, just special for <laughs> for at least the first half of Star Trek uh-huh. motion picture. Uh-huh. Um, you know, he does the whole just you know come in and 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 kick Decker around. He drafts, and they joke about this, but he drafts McCoy. We don't know how McCoy was. We don't know what McCoy was up to, mm-hmm. but because mm-hmm. Kirk needs him, he needs him. Yeah. Well, then okay. Well, yeah, you're right. You know what? Screw my life. <laughs> You're absolutely right, because you need me, Captain Kirk. So, okay. Pee Wee Herman needs a pickle. And so, just, you know, throw off everything and go go get him exactly what he needs. Um, it, down to, and what's weird is, he, he, he thinks he can't get Spock. Mm-hmm. And if he can't have Spock, well, you know, a Vulcan. How would that be? Can I just get yeah, a Vulcan right, there? Right. Which is kind of, it's, it's a little bit more mix and match than I would expect him to be about uh, about Spock. Yeah, it's a little strange, yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I, there's something about that shot when he comes out on the shuttlecraft, and, and it's just like, wow. You, know, we've, you and I have spent all this time on the original series, and everything looks and feels like the original series. But I feel like that moment when Kirk steps off, it's like, wow, that, that encapsulates the character. It, it's great. It's just a moment, but it, it really struck out to me. Mm-hmm. I, the other thing that stuck out to me, and Ken, we joked about it earlier. Let's talk about that scene in Dry Dock. Of the Enterprise. Yeah. Because I'm here to tell you, I did not, I did not care in 1979 and I don't care now because it's one of the times, this goes back to our our listener email. It's one of the few times that the Enterprise really felt real to me. That, that, that series of effects is so good. That model is so good. We see the scale, the detail, the, like we could never see it before. And I don't think we'll ever see anything since that looks that good. Um, I, I'm not a big CGI fan when it's, well, there's a lot of bad CGI out there. Sure. But this to me is just phenomenal. And yeah, it's a long take. And yeah, this movie has weird pacing issues, but I love it. It takes a long time. It, I mean, here's, here, here's what I will say. One of the times that I watched it, I was able to take myself out of how long it was taking because mm-hmm. and and maybe this is because you and I did watch, you know, Star Trek the original series and then watch the animated series. And and while the effects in the original series were, you know, fine, I mean they were they were TV circa 1966 to 69, right? Mm-hmm. Um the uh, the animated series of course is absolutely terrible. And so when you get I mean as far as the as far as the look, as far as the effects if you want to call them that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so by the time you do get to, they've got a few bucks to throw around. They got a few quatloos to spend on a model, right? And, <laughs> right, and a few guys right. to run some cameras. I get the desire to show that. And I get the mm-hmm. desire to, to, you know, to really spend time with it. And I did at first during one of the times that I watched it, have a moment of, yeah, that really is neat. Mm-hmm. And it's still neat. 
and it's still neat. And <laughs> right. okay, at one point I'm like, okay, do you want to see what it would look like if we were flying straight at it? Okay, well, <laughs> so so imagine right, you're a Klingon, okay, Kirk? Okay, mm-hmm. you know, this is what it's going to look like for the Enterprise to be coming straight at you. Right. I, I mean, after a right. while, it just it got to be a tiny bit much. It is beautiful. And yeah, I love the yeah. redesign, and 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 the one thing that I do wish. There are a couple of reasons, actually, that I wish, and this sort of goes into the discussion of the movie a little bit, but I wish mm-hmm. we weren't watching it after having just watched those things. Mm. I can't take myself out of it and go, well, it's been five years since there was anything new from Star Trek, mm. or four years since there was five, since there was anything new from Star Trek as we sit down to watch this, right? Yeah. So, I mean, so much of this would have been, I mean, mind-blowing to some people and like old Home Week, but in a completely different way for for people who had been watching it forever. Right. And, you know, we don't get that five-year gap. Maybe that's what we should have done. (laughs) Just take take five (laughs) years off. five years off. And then when we get back, we'll be like, wow, this was really amazing. (laughs) Because it's been five years. So people listening, actually, maybe you should pause. Just wait pause, wait five back. years yeah. yeah and then come back and it'll, it'll be like it'll be like new all over again for you i want to touch on something else that changes a little bit from the the series to the movie there are a lot more people on the enterprise and especially on the bridge mm-hmm. and it seems like their main job is just to stand around and look directly at the main cast whenever they have important dialogue yeah. Um, like, did you notice the creepy alien with the giant forehead? And he just sort of stands there leaning up against the console with this very smug look on his face, staring down on somebody else's conversation. Um, there are not a lot of chairs. No. So you just have people wandering around. And uh, they, they just really seem engaged in what other people are doing. I found that to be a little, a little odd, he a little rem- unnerving even. He reminded me of, uh, of Brack from This Island Earth. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. Maybe he was even one of those aliens. I have no idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A Metalunan. They were Metalunans, weren't they? Meta- yes, right. Yeah, yeah Metalunans. Um, oh, and by the way, uh, NASA has launched two Voyager space probes. Well, that you know about. Yeah, right, right, right. Uh, <laughs> so there's not a Voyager 6 that I know that of. That you know about, right. I remember reading somewhere that uh, I, somebody ran an article about this movie called Where Nomad Has Gone Before. And I guess this sort of goes back to the uh, the thing that we were saying with Judith and Garfield Eve Stevens, that maybe Gene Roddenberry felt like he was going to keep going back and uh, telling a story until he got it right. Voyager. This is the Voyager of the Starship Enterprise. So, what can we take away from their encounter? You know, there are many things that I want to touch upon in our discussion for this movie. But I I think the big one right away is that, to me, this movie is all about Spock. You know, not only is it just about Spock, it is absolutely the critical turning point in Star Trek centering around Spock. You know, we don't get the Spock that uh, we're about to see in Star Trek 2, and I know, spoiler, jumping the timeline, but without seeing this Spock go through what he has gone through. Um, When we start out, you know, Spock is acting on his own whim. He, his sort of, his needs above the needs of others. It's sort of before that mind meld with Fijer, He's back to acting like that old Spock who wouldn't help his own father in Journey to Babel. 
You know? Well, and, and I actually I would have to disagree entirely. Really? Well, I mean, he is back to that Spock who wouldn't do that, mm-hmm. but he used the org chart as his reason for not doing that in Journey to Babel. I've got mm-hmm. I've got duties, and I get you know I can't nothing I can do about that. Whereas this Spock is actually putting his needs above even the org chart, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he expresses to Kirk at one point that he's a little worried that their only communication is the Ilea um, probe. Right. And right. its communication with Decker. But, you know, at that point in the series, Kirk might have said, well, do you have another idea? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and Kirk doesn't say, do you have another idea in this one? I don't know that Kirk would have let Spock go. And I think Spock, Spock is smart enough to know that Kirk probably wouldn't have let him go. So instead, he sneaks off. He, he you know, does the Vulcan nerve pinch on this Sam Rockwell character down sort of in the bowels right. of the ship. Right. Is that somebody we know, by the way? Uh, no, not that I know of. But, right. uh, that yeah, he's uh, like I, guy. He's like yeah. guy from from Galaxy Quest. Like, he is, as soon as yeah. you see him in the big room, I'm like, wow, it looks like guy. And then once he gets knocked out, I'm like, oh, it's totally guy. Except right. he you know, didn't <laughs> right. get killed. Right. Um. There, there's a bit of Spock sort of uh, doing what Spock feels he needs to do, but he's breaking rules here in a way that he never would have in the series. Hmm. Yeah, I mean that is interesting. That I I get that that um, he would have found he would have found the structural excuse, the 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 excuse by rules to not do or to do what he wanted to do. But I just feel I, I feel like either way you cut it, it's that hard headed Spockness that he's just going to try to shift things in his favor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, right. um, he, he had to do it, uh, obviously, for, for this movie, for the character. Really, He had to do what what he had to do. But I will say this for the whole thing. It, it's interesting that it takes alien influence to get Spock to step outside of himself and reconcile his two halves. It, it, this is one of those Star Trek tropes where it's always been good at letting humans look at themselves through the mirror of other alien races. Here's Spock put into that position where he gets to look at himself only by experiencing something outside of himself. You know, what, what, what strikes me as interesting, I would like to know a bit more about the Vulcans here. And I would like to know mm. if, if this ends up doing sort of what I did all through the first season, I think, or at least the first half of the first season, uh, of wondering whether we're not saying that the way the Vulcans do things is not right. Mm-hmm. Um, Spock, it seems to me, out-Vulcans the Vulcans here. He's more Vulcan than the Vulcans are, I think, because there's this great consciousness calling to him, right, from mm-hmm. the sky, or there's this great consciousness happening, that he can hear. I don't know that it's calling to him necessarily, but he's picking up on it. Yeah, yeah. One would think that the Vulcans, being, you know, you know Mr. and Ms. Logic all the way through, uh, would be sensitive enough to hear it. Or at least, you know, certainly the ones who get to sit in judgment over Spock. And yet mm-hmm. it's it's mm-hmm. only the, you know, the half-human uh, who's, who's sensitive enough to pick up on it. So I don't know if that's, again, you know, sort of a, a condemnation of, of the Vulcan way. Um but he's he's pretty much they look at him as a failure it seems once he is actually sensitive enough to pick up on the fact that there is a a, a thing a right. being that no one else can hear once they find out that he's hip to that and yeah. you know through the mind meld they actually know that that's what's happening with him he's not just being weak he's not just oh, i'm not sure but i like ice cream and vulcans don't like ice cream so maybe they don't want to be vulcan <laughs> i mean he's actually hearing something that nobody else can hear and they're like Pfft. Get yeah. out. 
Take your necklace and go. I'm not going to give you the necklace because that would be too much. I'm going (laughs) to drop it right there. That Which just, is really, that does not look like a purely logical necklace, by the way. No, 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 no. But, but it's really interesting because you think that if the Vulcans only stick with that and, and if all those hyperlogical, very Vulcan Vulcans, if they're not hip to this, if they're not tuned into the idea of this cloud and, and how do we react to it, that cloud could just as easily have come along and swallowed up their entire planet. Yeah, you know they're just not even paying attention. No, 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 no. You, we're not going to worry about that. It's calling to you. Yeah, so what? <laughs> you know, you're you're not good enough. You're not Vulcan enough. So um, we'll see you later. Well, that is, and maybe that's maybe that's again part of the uh, part of the message about humanity. I mean, you say that this this that you feel like this episode or this movie, excuse me, mm-hmm. is all about Spock. I would argue this episode is all about humanity. I mean, the Vulcans. It seems to me on any number of occasions. If anything is coming to kill the Vulcans, they would just look at it logically and go, man, I wish there was something we could do, but we can't. So let's just sit here calmly and wait for it to happen. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. the cloud's not going to phase them because life ends, right? And if no, this I, happens to be the way life ends, then they're just going to be purely logical about it and go, oh, well. Although, you know, one wonders if you couldn't follow that to the point that one day they just don't get out of bed anymore. Right. It's right. like, yeah, what's the point? Logically speaking, this is all done at some point, so it might as well be done now. <laughs> right. What's right. on the hyperwave? Well, it's interesting that, <laughs> that Spock and V'ger are having the same existential crisis. You know, it, it's really touching and smart stuff that goes back to one of those central questions about Star Trek. What is the essential element that makes us human? Or, or in Spock's case, at least makes him whole. Um, I love that scene in sickbay right after the spacewalk yeah so kirk goes out to capture spock they bring him back in and and he's passed out on the uh, on the bed in sickbay and grabs kirk's hand and says this this simple feeling is beyond v'ger's comprehension Mm -hmm. so well played so well done and and that's why i go back to this thing about yeah i'm not in disagreement with you uh, about this movie being about humanity i think it is a celebration of humanity for sure i think that as as a character though this to me it it pushes spock even more to the forefront than the original series did the original series was kirk's heroics all the time and now it's like okay now we found the heart of star trek and that is in spock's character so that, that's kind of what I mean by that. And I think we'll, we'll wrap up even more of that when, when we uh, actually do our wrap-up on this. But, but yeah, I, that to me, that, that scene is so fantastic in this movie and, and really is the, the turning point of getting where the movie is going. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's certainly – well, obviously I'm going to agree with you when you say that you agree with me about it being humanity. Because, <laughs> okay, good. Know, I started it. Yeah, but, yeah, I mean, yeah. there's certainly a need for humanity in this movie, but not humans as a race necessarily. Human mm-hmm. nature, I would mm-hmm. say. Mm-hmm. There is, again, that whole thing that Spock is the only Vulcan who's Vulcan enough to get, you know, what's going on with V'ger. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the whole thing that V'ger doesn't understand, you know, feeling, only logic. And what an eye-opener that is for Spock. I will say I was a tiny bit worried because it looked like he was going to smile. Uh, yes. <laughs> and, you know, that's trouble. Yeah, yeah, when, yeah. When, when, yeah. When, when Spock smiles, duck and take cover because something yeah. bad is about to happen. Well, but, there, but, there is a little bit of an edit, though, where uh, not, not smiling Spock, but you have the tear falling down Spock's cheek. And that is from the director's cut. Now, so, when, when does that happen? 
Uh, that happens later on the bridge when uh, uh, Spock, as they're going through the V'ger cloud and Spock, they, they turn around, Kirk sees Spock, there's a tear coming down his cheek, and uh, Kirk says, for us? And he says, no, for V'ger. Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's a nice moment. You know, again, I don't think it changes the, the theme of the movie, so it doesn't mean that you, you know, don't get the movie if you don't see that part. But crying Vulcan, maybe Trump's smiling Vulcan. Well, I don't know. Smiling Vulcan is No, smiling Vulcan always means trouble. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's yeah, the problem. Yeah, he's up to something. Yeah, yeah, he's up to something. Yeah, he's yeah. an unknown quantity at that point. Yeah, yeah. Um, I will say I agree with you uh, agreeing with me. No, I agree. <laughs> I, I agree with you that this is definitely a turning point for Spock, which is which is really interesting because that then dictates and and jumping the timeline timeline. Excuse me, that dictates the next three movies. Yeah. So so that is kind of interesting. Uh, there there's also sort of a reexamination though of what of what makes Kirk in this. And mm-hmm. and if we assume that Spock and McCoy are extensions of Kirk in a way, which we did a lot in the uh, at least in the first year, maybe first year and a half of the original right. series, here we again have this message about humanity. Um, though it's it's more about what makes Kirk whole, I think, than what makes Spock. I mean, it's almost like a it's almost like a realization of these two characters in this episode, where a lot of times it was a realization of Kirk. Right? He needed his passionate side, which was McCoy. He needed his logical side, which was Spock, and, and that sort of blended together to make a, a, a perfect captain, whether that was a triumvirate or whether that was just what they gave to Kirk. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one that I really feel bad for is McCoy, because mm-hmm. he gets nothing to do in this movie. He gets, yeah, I mean, except for be yeah. irascible. I mean, he's basically, can we just can we just go ahead and say that we're going to jump the timelines in the movies because we're going to? Is that all right with you? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I, I guess we have to a little bit because the, the character threads. Well, I'm going to way of, jump it. So, I mean, people have oh, plenty okay, of time okay. to forget this. Okay, um, McCoy in In the Darkness mm-hmm. was useless. McCoy mm-hmm. in, in uh, the 2009 reboot was interesting. Mm-hmm. McCoy in, um, in In the Darkness was a cartoon character. He yeah. was like the animated series version right. of McCoy. He right. got to right. do very little, had very little to say. It was just jokes and jokes about his jokes. And, yeah. and and that's not what McCoy was in this exactly. He is a tempering influence at one point with Kirk. But he's only a tempering influence at one point with Kirk. Yeah. And so basically we have this character who's been pulled out of whatever it was he was doing. Presumably, you know, having a good Georgia mint julep and, and living the good life. Right, right. Uh, and now he's back here simply because, you know, well, well, gee, you know, you complete me, McCoy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. McCoy's like, I was complete where I was, you know, so maybe. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. Maybe he's fine with it. Maybe he's fine being, maybe he's fine being Kirk's left-hand man. I don't know. But <laughs> I, I felt particularly bad for his character, actually, when he's doing the whole you know, I was I was fine, and then I had to transport, which I hate. You know, people die in these things. Yeah, yeah, which they just did. <laughs> just, I hear they die in these things. Oh, yeah, no, no, it happened. You want to see? <laughs> yeah, that was kind of sad. Hey, by the way, um, we didn't touch on this. A transporter doesn't save lives anymore. Remember, oh, remember all through wait, the cartoon? Yeah. It was like, oh, I'm getting old. Oh, go through the transporter, and you'll be young. Hey, I'm far yeah. too young. Oh, go through the transporter, you'll get older. And so, you know, they try to beam over the guys from Starfleet, and, oh, that doesn't go yeah. well, and yeah. what came back to us didn't live long. Yeah, put, put Commander Sonic's guts back <laughs> in the transport. 
Send them back. Scoop him up. Scoop him up. We'll, right. we'll fix the transporter because, you know, we, we're bound to have him in the buffer from someplace. Right. Um, and, right. Uh, yeah, just so, so pour him back onto the transporter platform <laughs> and we'll see what we can make. Yeah. 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 Might have ended oh. up being like the fly since there were two of them coming through, but still. Oh, no. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's This is a very – you know, I, I also hated the um, – I hated the wormhole. It mm. almost took as long. As flying around the Enterprise, but yeah. but I do – to the point that uh, that the listener made with his notes, this is not the easy ride that it's been. I mean this yeah. is not the Enterprise. I wouldn't want to take this Enterprise uh, uh, beyond the farthest star. No. <laughs> no, you would not. No, because no. it's just going to it's just gonna break the heck up. Although it's weird yeah. to me that at the end of the movie, Kirk's like, well, you want to give the Enterprise a shakedown? I can't believe Scotty wasn't like – where have you been for the last 28 hours? <laughs> Can we please put it back in dry dock? <laughs> it has shaken oh. down plenty, and yes. so am I. Yeah, yeah. One of the great themes here, and of course, they, they kind of drive it home with some of the dialogue. Uh, we have the great lines, is this all that I am? Is there nothing more? That Spock speaking for uh, Viger, mm-hmm. saying that this is the, the kind of... Uh, existential journey that Viger is on. Um, there's a line from the TV edit, uh, where Decker says, we all create God in our own image, referring to V'ger looking for a machine and unable to reconcile the idea that a human could create a machine, that a, that a carbon unit could create a machine. This kind of goes back to Nomad, obviously, again, from the Changeling. And I like the idea here that uh, what happens when we reach out to God and there's nothing there or we don't like the answer that we get? This is very hard for V'ger to deal with. And V'ger would rather short-circuit itself than get the correct answer to what's going on. So it looks like machines have a very hard time with cognitive dissonance and the assimilation of new information, which you could say is either just like humans or humans at least when they have that cognitive dissonance it allows them to at least continue on in their lives when they get information they don't like or don't understand at least we can sort of continue on with what we do instead of being like viger and come to a total short circuit meltdown i think that's true for a certain type of person Mm -hmm. it's i mean there are plenty of people who are fine going to work and coming home and watching TV and having a beer and going to bed and the next morning getting up and going to work and coming home and watching TV and having a beer and go to bed. Mm-hmm. And I'm not making fun of people who do that. And, and, they're, and, and in a lot of ways, I am that person. And in a lot of ways, I'm not. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that V'ger just like, well, I don't like the answer that God's given me, so I'm going to change it. I think V'ger wasn't ready to be done. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? I think mm-hmm. V'ger knew that there was more that V'ger could do, but if it went ahead and just started, you know, started its core dump, then then there wasn't going to be anything more for it to do. V'ger needed to continue, but it needed someone else to continue. Because think about it: if they had completed their, you know, if they completed their final thing, if they gotten the last sequence of numbers, and V'ger had just started their core dump, at mm-hmm. that point, then okay, well, now let's open the V'ger Museum. Or, you know, well, yeah. now let's find out about this, you know, this planet that V'ger came from and go back there. Let's see if we can find that black hole and go through it and find the machine planet and, you know, all that stuff. V'ger had learned enough at that point to know that there was more that it could learn. And, yeah. and so it wanted to do that. So I, I, didn't, I don't feel quite like it's the whole, well, I don't like this answer, so I'm going to change it. 
I think it was more the, mm, I'm not ready to settle. I'm not, mm. I'm not, I'm not mm-hmm. ready to finish. And so, you know, so I'm not going to finish. I'm going well, so to keep going. It, it needs purpose. It, it, it needs a mission. It needs something to do. I guess, let me ask you this. Do you, do you think that uh, this is changing the topic a little bit, but mm-hmm. uh, V'ger has stored all the data patterns of everything and every one it has assimilated, for mm-hmm. lack of a better word. Yep. Uh, are they still alive by your estimation? No. Okay. No, I wondered if they could be recreated. Yeah. But, I mean, that goes to the whole Kurzweil question of can I copy the brain well enough that I could just then be put into something else. I mean, he made such a – he, it, Vidra made such a great copy of Ilea mm-hmm. that it ends up with feelings for Decker. And who knows? It's possible that Vidra wouldn't have had that existential moment had it not just made the copy of Ilea that has very strong feelings for one of the people that it's dealing with. I mean, right. Vidra has never made a copy of something that has then gone to interact with the things that it was – that it had been um, interacting with before it got digitized by Veja, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it you know it took over wherever it was that the guy who was going to be the Vulcan. It, took, it didn't. It didn't take a couple of people from that space station and then interact again. It ate the space station. It didn't take some of the Klingons and then send the other ones back to the Klingon homeworld. It ate all the Klingons, and it's yeah. it seems to have just been absorbing civilizations in their entirety, and then without. Without then turning that into a probe and going back and interacting, it may never have an idea of – it may never have this inspiration that, oh, wait a minute. The, okay, I'm I'm getting something out of this copy of this thing that I've never gotten before, and now I have the question of, you know, is this all there is? Maybe. Yeah, right. I didn't right. get the sense that Vidra was after anything above the core dump until the whole thing happens with Ilea and Decker. Mm. Well, and what do you think about Decker's motivation uh, I, when he ultimately merges with V'ger? Mm. You know, <laughs> well, I mean, Spock, you know, Spock was the one who had motivation to learn and understand more about V'ger. Mm-hmm. Decker was just sort of like, well, I, I don't have a ship anymore and uh, don't have a girlfriend <laughs> anymore. Well, this looks good. I'll yeah. become a new entity. <laughs> it, it was kind of weird that he's like, I want this as much as you wanted the Enterprise. Yeah, I mean, really? That's, that means, so if Spock had been on his way to do that, would Decker have then found a way to undermine Spock <laughs> the way that <laughs> Kirk right. undermined Kirk Decker? Undermined Decker. <laughs> yeah, it nice. seemed, it was sort of, it was sort of, um, I mean, it's a great parallel with his dad, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's yeah. suicide by alien intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> right or su- right. suicide by super machine maybe right. i mean that's that's sort of an interesting uh yeah what was that what was what was the one that uh his father was in the the doomsday machine the doomsday just, machine uh, yeah. the whole decker family just yeah. don't don't give them a ship don't put them near a combine it's amazing that they ever like <laughs> right. survive the agrarian uh, society <laughs> right. that we were in the u.s i assume that they're u.s right i mean you'd think they were just yeah, looking at yeah. a wheat thresher going i don't know there's something about it <laughs> <laughs> something about it that right. calls to me. Right. I can't say what it is exactly. Um, he obviously likes Ilea. Uh, you know, uh, not to not to say anything bad about uh, Robert Weiser, his directing. Mm-hmm. Um, in different hands, maybe that um, maybe that uh, relationship would have been handled differently. I mean, we're just sure. told that they were in love, and so that's enough. And so right. maybe that's enough to pull Decker in. Or maybe the fact that he, they got hosed by Starfleet, this thing that he's given his life to, you know, is enough for him to say, yeah, you know, <laughs> if that can just happen at any moment, I'm ready to go try something else. I mean, you do actually have the question of, is there more 
being asked and answered by a number of characters. Um, certainly, Vitor is asking that question and looking for an answer. Spock is asking that question and yeah, finally coming to terms with the answer. I mean, I think you could argue that Spock has always known that the answer was his humanity, but finally coming to terms with that answer. Um, and maybe you have Decker doing the same thing. I mean, once once this thing that he's pinned all of his hopes on lets him down, then maybe he's willing to you know roll the dice and, and find out if there's something else. Oddly enough, the character who doesn't seem to be asking that question at all is Kirk. Right, <laughs> yeah. Because what he wants to be is Captain of the Enterprise, even if you're going to still call him Admiral. What he wants to be is Captain of the Enterprise. It's all he wanted to be in the original series. It's all he wanted to be in the animated series. Yeah. And surprise, surprise, it's all he wants to be afterwards. There was there was one other thing along with the need for humanity. Mm-hmm. I think that we could argue that there's a warning here about systems and machines run amok. And I don't want to say technology run amok, although you mm-hmm. could say that if you want to, but that almost feels a little too easy. Mm-hmm. Um, V'ger is a machine with no humanity. So it moves through the universe, killing and cataloging with absolutely no concern for the fate of its uh, subjects or specimen. Um, it was put on this path um, partly by us, Mm-hmm. Though we just had it recording information, along comes this machine planet, or it you know comes to the machine planet, and whether because the machine planet sees inefficiency, or simply because it misunderstands Vitra's directive, um, it puts it on this on this you know absolute sort of clear cutting path. Let's say I don't want to say killing because I don't think it meant to kill necessarily. No, of course. but it's clear cutting. You know, all the information is I'll take that, I'll take that, I'll take that, I'll take that with no with no concern about you know what it's going to get it. Right. Um, systems without humanity lead to yeah. just sort of a complete disregard for anything but mission. And yeah. you know, then of course you know what, what's what's the point of it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because then, well, if you get if you get to your if you get back home and and things aren't exactly the way you think they're going to be, then they just become a victim of you as well. And then you're just, I guess, you're just clear cutting a path across the universe at that point. Yeah. Well, well, that's where you go back to the changeling. You go back to the ultimate computer. All you, the you know, ultimate the, computer. <laughs> Sorry. These, that these are the things that uh, that Star Trek has dealt with before, and and I think they're evergreen enough that I'm cool when they come back to it again mm-hmm. to to try to explore that. Because I, as you and I have said on our show before, this in this science fiction context isn't something where we just come up with the answer and say, oh, look, we figured this out. No, no, no. This is where we start to explore the idea of as our technology evolves, how do we make sure that we maintain and therefore our creations maintain some level of uh, – compassion and and fair use so that we're not destroying ourselves in the process what's the um what's the line that flashes at the very end of the movie the human adventure is just beginning yeah yeah Yeah. like i guess i guess really we could have just skipped straight to the last 10 seconds (laughs) of the movie then and said what's the message uh the human adventure is just beginning ten years after the original series Five years after the animated series, and well over 30 years ago now, how does Star Trek The Motion Picture stand up today? Well, since we're not doing things the exact same way we've done things, although, you know, this is, as we said last week, phase three of Star Trek, uh, or sorry, mission log, um... So it's not going to be exactly the same. 
kind of the part where we would normally say what the messages, morals, and meanings are and decide whether this uh, movie uh, stands the test of time. I don't know that it's quite that, but let's go ahead and try to sum up what we thought of, uh, of Star Trek, the motion picture. Or does it hold up? Uh, it, it depends on how you want to qualify that question. Okay. Um, costumes, no. Uh, <laughs> pacing, no. Yeah. Um, you know, movies today do not look or feel like Star Trek, the motion picture, but I'm here to tell you that I don't care if it's boring. There are a lot of movies that are hard to get through, but ultimately are very satisfying. Quadrophenia, Day of the Earth Stood Still, anything in oh. black and white being watched by someone under the age of 30. <laughs> you know? Wait, really quickly, the original Day of the Earth Stood Still. Well, and the new one's hard to get through, too, but for different reasons. Yeah, but is yeah. it worth it? I mean, <laughs> no, don't, don't, no, don't, not, don't, not worth it at all. Don't mislead people. Yeah. Okay. Uh, no, no, yeah. just don't even bother. Um, you know, I still love old, and I, I put that in quotes, you know, old movies. Um, silent movies aren't made like movies today, but I, I still love them. So I think if we ask the question, does this movie hold up as Star Trek, then I cannot overstate how critical I think the motion picture is to Star Trek as a whole. It honors the best of what the original series was, while at the same time making a very clean break for the future. It's mature and thoughtful in ways that the old series was not. Again, as a character piece, it is so critical uh, for Spock, for the Spock character. It puts him right at the center, at the heart of Trek mythology. Um, it, it makes him really the most important character of all. Um, as Star Trek becomes a way to ask what it truly means to be human. Um, and then there are just things that I like about it. Like I said, the score is, I think, one of the most beautiful scores ever done for a movie. I think it's fantastic. Um, I Forgive me, Ken, because I, I don't want a soapbox here, but there was something really magic about watching this movie again after dedicating what nearly the last two years for you and I to the original series and the animated series. I was blown away by the visuals. I was excited to see the characters in a new context and I felt like they had been refined so much more. Um, thing felt very different from the track that came before it and it felt real um, from those long, boring shots in space <laughs> to the much shinier and much more plastic and monochromatic look of everything. Um, so I would say that if you are a Star Trek fan who has had a bad taste in your mouth about the motion picture, go back and rewatch it, you know, especially after going through and watching the original series and the animated series the way that we have. Um, I think this movie does a great job at touching on what Star Trek is all about, maybe even better than, uh, well, maybe not the majority, but a good portion of those episodes that we have seen so far. Um, and that is why you should vote for me for president. Go ahead, Ken. Nicely Sorry done. for the Nicely speechifying. Done. No, no, Thank no, you. no that's, Thank o- that's okay. It wasn't quite a Kirk speech, but it was good. Okay, all right. So, so how do you feel? You are the champion, my friend. <laughs> and I'll keep on fighting. Yeah, yeah you do that. Um. I would agree with a lot of what you said. I, I wish there had been a little bit more, and we'll get to it. I wish there had been a bit more um, Kirk questioning Kirk. Mm. I know you like the fact that he was just heroic from the get-go in this. I, I did not like the fact that he was heroic from the get-go in this. And I almost feel like it was people forgetting who Kirk had been 
I mean, we talked about you know what a, what a great actor uh, Shatner was in the first probably uh, season and a half of mm-hmm. of the original series, and it's because he was asked to be a great actor. And I, and I have no doubt that he could have continued being a great actor through the entire original series, but he wasn't often asked to as it went on. He became a right. little bit sort of cardboard, and so he started playing Shatner playing Kirk. And I right. felt like we had sort of forgotten that there was this nuanced character in part of the original series as far as Kirk was concerned. We had him as love him and leave him Kirk. We had him as 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 Superman uh, who couldn't fly, except, of course, he had a spaceship, so he could fly. I mean, he even stands there in the Superman pose at one point. There is not he a does, second. Yeah. There is not a second that Kirk wonders whether what Kirk is doing is right. Even when he is sort of bumbling around and doesn't know exactly where he's going, he's willing to concede that, yes, okay, Decker should, you know, he should listen to Decker, you know, uh, uh, sort of you know, do his second guessing because that's his job as second in command. Right. There is one cute moment. I'm sad that there's really only one cute moment, but there's one cute <laughs> moment where, where, you know, Decker says, and so now, you know, so now we're stuck in this machine. And Kirk's like, that's right. Now that we've got it right where it wants us. That's funny. Yeah. That's yeah. funny. And there's not quite enough of that for me. Um, Kirk was a little too... Kirk was the statue of Kirk in in yeah. this movie and that and that bothers me because we did get a great examination of 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 Spock in this and I feel like you need that for Kirk as well. Now, not to spoil it, but if if people haven't seen the movies yet, <laughs> it's been 30 years, so I'm I'm going to go ahead and I'll give the obligatory spoiler, although I'm not going to give away any plot points. We get some of that examination from Kirk as we go forward. Yeah. Sometimes it works better than other times. We get some of it. I wish we had had it in this. It was very exciting to see a more fully realized universe, to see Klingons that look like, you know, not just like people in, in you know, quilted vests, <laughs> but actually a whole different race. Right. I wonder, honestly, if I would have recognized them as Klingons if somebody hadn't told me. Because they're, well, I guess the ship would have given it away. But they are so incredibly different looking. Sure. Uh, that ship is absolutely beautiful. Before, oh, so you, before you get to see the 25-minute exposition that is flying around the Enterprise. <laughs> right. I, just, I mean, the Klingon ship looks absolutely amazing. I mean, having money and being able to sort of play with money. And then trying to give a sense, too, that this is a dangerous place. I, I would have felt bad for Walter Koenig had he, had Chekhov died. Mm-hmm. But had Chekhov died, it would have actually made it a bit more serious. I mean, because we get the sense that, oh, man, these people could die. Because, look, that character that we met for three minutes died. Right. So so people could die. And, and, oh, the wormhole, we almost died, but we didn't. You know, if there, if if one of our central characters had had bought it, I think that would have made it even that much more you know scary and real. At the same time, then we wouldn't have Chekhov giving one of my favorite lines in all of the Star Trek movies, because <laughs> <laughs> because it comes you know in a later yeah. movie, and I won't say what it is right now. Oh, but you'll hear it a few times once we get there. Because yeah. I, I thought it, w- w- one of my favorite lines in this is the. Uh, uh, Oh, the scene on the bridge where the probe comes through again, and uh, Kirk says, "Don't interfere." And <laughs> then Chekhov says, I, I "Absolutely, <laughs> I will not interfere." <laughs> that is pretty good. Yeah, that's it's pretty that's, great. That's yeah. pretty great. It, does the movie hold up by today's standards? No, I don't think so. But I don't think this. I, I don't think that we're talking to people who are looking for a movie that's going to hold up by today's standards. Honestly, if you're a Star Trek fan, then I think you'll find a lot of stuff to love about it, and you'll find a lot of stuff to make fun of. 
like the yeah. 25 minute flyby and and the uh, and the and the costumes but i mean there is a tremendous amount including you're right this is this is where the switch finally gets like thrown and locked into the on position for spock i mean that's yeah. the other thing that we're not going to have we're not going to have the week to week you know I remember last week when he was okay being half human and now he absolutely hates himself for it or he doesn't even remember that thing happening. We're going to go ahead and lock Spock into this, you know, I am these two things and I'm okay being these two things because these two things make me the one whole that I am. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's, 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 that's kind of a great thing. The rest of it, you just kind of have to, kind of have to go with it because there's enough good stuff here. Although, right. did, did you see the Rotten Tomatoes? No. 45%. I'm thinking about I'm thinking about going back and reading some of the some of the reviews because yeah. I don't think there's that much to hate. <laughs> I mean, no. that's forty five percent a bad score, and that, that that really feels like people who are I don't know maybe they were looking for Star Wars or Close Encounters. Maybe I mean you know again if we look at it as Star Trek, yeah. To to me, the the crew gets to do what Star Trek does well. They they look at the universe with awe and wonder. They learn something through cooperation and nonviolence, and they help their friends out along the way. You know, these are the hallmarks of Star Trek. But I think what's very cool here, if you look at kind of an overriding message, um, Kirk sums it up at the end. He says, we gave V'ger the ability to create its own sense of purpose. And, you know, we get that, uh, and I quote, out of our own human weaknesses and the drive that compels us to overcome them. So again, you know, Star Trek celebrates our imperfections as the things that make us special. And in this very interesting way, it says, you know, look, you cannot rely on God slash creator slash outside force to do that for us, to find the purpose for us. That is what makes us uniquely human is that we get to develop our own purpose. And and hopefully that purpose is an ideal that we that we strive for and strive to exceed. You know, if there's if there's an underlying thing here, I hope it's that. I will say, too, you got to give Vidra mad props for being only the second computer that Kirk has come across that he hasn't tried to talk into killing itself. Mm. (laughs) well you could put it that way too ken (laughs) i'm I'm saying that's a bonus i mean no what you said what you said is absolutely right i mean i do have the same sort of rankling that i always have but i i'm just gonna have to make something up that's gonna make it okay it's easy for kirk to say that because kirk's at the top of the org chart in fact kirk is above the top of the org chart and puts himself back at the top of the org chart i think if he made that speech to a lowly ensign who he dressed down for having his shirt well, I guess in this episode, it'll be having a shirt tucked in. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, don't think, I don't think everybody on board the Enterprise is necessarily going to agree. Yeah, you're right. We can make our own destiny. The only way I can make that work is, if, is if, if Kirk represents us each as the captains of our own destiny. And then the question is, are we just going to, you know, take somebody else's paycheck, go home, watch TV, drink beer, get up and do the same thing again? Or are we going to make sure that we're doing what we want to do in our lives? Well, well um, they, they all go through that because, I mean, remember, it's not just Kirk. It's also Spock. It's also Spock thinking, wait, there's a thing out there that I have to do. When in reality, what it boils down to is, no, it is Spock internally reconciling the, the two competing forces of his psyche. And it, it's Kirk having that same conversation with, uh, with, with Decker about V'ger. 
you know, uh, Decker. Uh, and, the, you know, again, I, I mentioned that line that is only the director's cut uh, saying, you know, we all make God in our own image. It's like the, this external search that they keep having when in reality it comes down to their individual characters. It comes down to their individual uh, sense of purpose, sense of destiny instead of externalizing that. I think that's the interesting thing. And I, I get it. It's a lot easier for Kirk to say that than the lowly ensign. But that's also reflected in Spock, and I think in a big way in this movie. <laughs> I'm sorry. Really? Uh, really? What? Well, okay. So so you think that the, the second in command coming to that <laughs> is, is that much different than the captain coming to that? It's not about his command, but it's not about his position of command. It's about his his internal struggle, his internal uh, uh, reconciling of the two halves of his personality. Yeah, I'm I'm just saying I don't think you can I don't think you can address the fact that it's the captain coming to this realization by saying, well, no, look, it's also happening to this guy because that guy sits (laughs) next to the captain. I mean, (laughs) no, I know. I know. All right. I mean, that yeah. that said, I mean, like I say, maybe Kirk is supposed to represent all of us. And you, and you could certainly make that argument. I mean, maybe Kirk is supposed to represent all of us. Maybe the Enterprise is supposed to represent humanity. I've thought that you know, on more than mm-hmm. one occasion. I think we talked about it during the original series as well. Sure. When I get caught, though, in the fact that Star Trek is a universe, then to have one of the masters of the universe talking about mm-hmm. how things should run and never right. consulting, you know, the peons of the universe <laughs> <laughs> about how things should run. That, Coming that, to Saturdays has fallen in BC. Peons of the universe. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's 28 minutes of, it's not fair. <laughs> He-Man was mean to me and Skeletor <laughs> stepped on my stuff. It's not fair. Right. Yeah, also known as that little thing that used to float around next to He-Man, whatever his name was. I can't remember. Well, we got a little bit off topic. But, you know, we have to get off topic because the movie was 2 hours 11 minutes. Our podcast is supposed to be at least five minutes longer than the movie was. So we got another 47 (laughs) minutes, John. You want to talk about the weather the trouble with sand? I think what we ought to do is tell people how to reach us if they have their own comments or questions. Have at it, Ken. Uh, Well, if people want to get in touch with us and tell us, you know, what we missed and why we should have taken the extra 47 minutes, uh, Facebook, (laughs) Skype, and Twitter are great places to do that. The handle at all three places, Mission Log Pod. If people wanted to, they could call us, John. 323-522-5641. Be sure and start with what you're wearing. You can email us, missionlog at roddenberry.com. Remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And John, I feel like nearly two years of Mission Log has led to this moment for me to hear you say what we are covering next. Ken, next week on Mission Log, a little indie gem that I don't know if you've ever heard of or seen, but... Get to it! I think you'll like it. It's called Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Khan! Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Next week, movie number two. I don't know about you, but I, con, not wait. And transmission.
Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.